Before we start, we can do uh, paying respect to the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma samunasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma samunasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato so now we will have a, a session of questions and answers. Well, answers will uh, we'll see about that. And uh, you know, before we start, we just kept a few minutes of silence. And there is a saying that goes with. Uh, if when you ask a question, don't try to find the answer, but try to understand the question. So this is kind of uh, just by sometimes looking at the question, the answer can come by itself. Nevertheless, we'll make some comment about them, and we hope that they are going to be useful to your practice. So here, the first one, one question is, uh, is about uh, if awareness is resting in piti, in the piti, uh, the joy, can jhana level absorption develop or is an, another object of attention necessary? So like uh, this morning or these last days, we try to develop the pity, you know, the, 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 the factor of uh, joy. And so if we pay very close attention to that, if we keep that as an object of meditation, can we develop jhana? So First of all, it depends on how we define the word jhana. So we have to remind ourselves that you, we have different types of jhana. And uh, and actually, the division can be in relation to uh, the sphere of existence or the sphere of consciousness. So we have a type of jhana that means the mind will get, will get absorbed to some extent in an object of the sense sphere. So for example, if you listen to the sound very carefully, then it's a kind of jhana. If you are paying attention to your sensations also, this can also be a kind of jhana. But this type of jhana will be uh, limited to the sense spheres. So it can reach a certain level of concentration, but it will not go beyond the sensory experience. This is the first type of jhana. This is according, this definition is according to a, a Abhinama classification. So another type of jhana will be what is called a rupa vachara jhana. That means the object will be a fine 
materiality or fine material uh, type of uh, object and the sphere of consciousness that will have these objects will uh, go to a deeper uh, type of absorption. And most of the samatha meditation that are said, that are explained as leading to the jhana, they will refer here to the rupa vachara jhana. That means also that the object itself is, no, is not a reality, it's not a, an experience, it is a concept. So at some point the mind is able to create an object on which it will get very much concentrated and then the quality, the intensity of that concentration, because the object is conceptual, the object will not be changing. And so the meditation is much more powerful because it can go beyond the field of sense, uh, sense basis, the, the sphere of the sense sphere. Hmm? So, for example, if you also, for example, if you concentrate on, if you, when we practice metta, huh, so at some point we get very happy, and then the the objects that are used for that is being. So all the beings comes to be the object of our mind. So these beings actually are concepts. Huh? So they are an idea, they are an image, they are a representation of something that you come to perceive directly with your mind. So these types of objects that are conceptual, are much more powerful to uh, lead to a state of absorption. And also, so you have some objects that are uh, beyond the sphere of fine materiality, and the object will be completely immaterial. Mm? So like if you concentrate on space, or on nothingness, and things like this, this is the object is uh, still a concept, but it does not, it's not in the field of materiality. And then also you have an, a, a, few, a few other types of jhana. Huh? So, depending on the object that you choose, then the depth of the concentration will be depending uh, on that. So the question actually is that uh, if, you, we, if we concentrate only on the pity, Oh, only on the joy when we are in meditation, then the joy itself is a phenomena that is a reality. That means it's an experience. It's something that also that is always changing. So the fact of uh, establishing our mind on that changing phenomena brings a, uh, quite a good quality of, uh, of uh, concentration, but the phenomena being changing all the time, it's not as supportive as a concept, and also it will have the possibility to fade away when, the, uh, when, that, uh, in, when that emotion, when that uh, pity uh, fades away. Uh, so the way that we could uh, strengthen uh, jhana, like the samatha jhana, in case we are interested, is that uh, we have to find which object actually is stimulating that type of pity. Uh, so only concentrating on the pity uh, is not enough. On the joy, it's not enough. We have to see, okay, now what actually did trigger that joy? What actually is supporting that object of joy? Mm? So that's why, uh, you know, to be very clear about the object, 
will make us uh, more skillful into uh, developing what we want to develop. Next question. Thanks for emphasizing the wholesome mind states. You're welcome. Practicing Hetu Picheya, I notice that the mind inclines to detecting the unwholesome, loba, dosa, moha, rooted only, as if it would be conceited to see a loba, a dosa, a moha. As in, quotes here what the mind says, don't you think you are good enough yet? Or don't think this is enough to just see the wholesome mind states sometimes arising? So basically, a, a um, like who are you to be seeing? You're, you're being too conceited. So the question is, is this, is it Mara at work? Yes. Next question. So basically, yes, it's, um, of course, me, who are you to get in your own way to not see the, your inner goodness, to see the inner Buddha, to see the beauty, to see the, the, the wholesome roots? It's rather conceited not to, not to do that, not to see the good, not to see the wholesome. I'll just leave it at that. Then another question is that, uh, you know, there, there is a quote that uh, we use, a reference that, uh, that is written on the board, and it was about uh, uh, the things that are uh, the nutriment for the hindrances, and also the things that are the nutriment for the uh, seven enlightenment factors. So. Here it goes like the question is, what are the things that are the basis of doubt? And what are the things that are the basis for equanimity? So here, the basis for equanimity, actually, when we take that context being the bojanga, so this is the last bojanga factor. So this last bojanga factor, if it is developed gradually, will come to have its basis, the previous uh, factor of enlightenment, that means concentration. So that means the basis for that equanimity can be the mind that has been concentrated, you know, the, the, the sixth uh, bojanga this, this could be the base for developing the economy. But also in regard to the Bojanga, also if you like more references regarding these seven factors, not only they give the basis in the Visuddhimagga, but they also give the things that lead to the arising of these uh, enlightenment factors. So 
in regard to the arising of the equanimity enlightenment factor, five things actually lead or will support the, the, this arising. And first of all, for example, we have maintenance of neutrality towards living beings. Then maintenance of neutrality towards formations, inanimate things. Third, avoidance of persons who show favoritism towards beings and formations. Fourth, cultivation of persons who maintain neutrality towards beings and formations. And fifth, resoluteness upon that equanimity. This is in the, the, the Visuddhimagga, the chapter 4, and then the, the paragraph uh, 62. Also, in the Visuddhimagga, if you are kind of academic, or if you like to have more detail about your practice, then they give 10 types of equanimity. Hmm? So, since we have 10 types of equanimity, we could say also that we, we, we could have 10 bases for equanimity. So, maybe you look, if you are interested, in the book, and it is at the chapter number 4, and then the paragraph number uh, 1. 56, where you have 10 types of equanimity. For example, the equanimity as a, div a divine abiding, like Upeka, Brahma, Vihara. So this is a type of equanimity. The equanimity of enlightenment factor, this is another type of, of equanimity. The equanimity also that we will have in regard to balancing the faculties, like the equanimity of energy. So when we don't have too much energy and just enough, uh, and not, 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 the, not enough, then this is the equanimity. That means the equanimity of a very balanced uh, state of mind. And then the equanimity of uh, vipassana, that means you, you are just completely equanimous to whatever is happening in regard to your experiences related to the five aggregates. And then also we have equanimity as a feeling, equanimity also about uh, the jhana, and also purifying uh, an equanimity. So the definitions are, are given there. And this actually, these actually could be uh, the basis for the equanimity. And then about uh, what the things that are the basis of doubt. So that's a good question, actually. The things that are the basis of doubt. So. Of course, we have the text, and the, you know, like in the one of the the, 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 the second of the Majjhimanikaya, uh, second text, then they, they also give uh, which type of questioning or which type of doubts that will give rise to a wrong view, and which type of things actually should not be paid attention. Because if we pay attention too much on these issues, then doubts you know, and wrong view is going to arise. So the point that are mentioned there, it is, was I in the past? Will I be in the past? What was I in the past? Where will I be in the future? Was I in the future? And all kinds of things related to the existence of the self. Of course, we will come back to see how Buddhism explain the, the, the non-self anatta principle, but nevertheless, Doubts can arise in regard to that. It may not be very clear to you. Is it, is it a basis for doubt or not? So another basis of doubt, like 
Now question yourself, and then what could be the things that are the basis for the doubts that are sometimes in your mind? So sometimes we doubt about the practice itself. Sometimes we doubt about our ability to practice. Sometimes also we can doubt about the, the teachers. Sometimes we can doubt about uh, uh, things actually that are just not a source of inquiry, not a source of genuine questioning, but just a source of doubt, just doubting for doubting, connected with agitation, and then never finding an answer that is uh, appropriate. So she, she doesn't seem to doubt. Do you doubt anything? <laughs> what will be a basis for doubt? And if you don't doubt it, then uh, go with the next question, please. Okay. All right, next question. What is the difference between cause and condition? It's a good one. It's the one we were trying to kind of um, not exactly get into, but here we go. So, so it, the Buddha actually intentionally did not make a distinction between cause and condition. Because what we consider a cause um, in our abstraction <coughs> is, is just an abstraction that we make because there are a lot of conditions. There are a lot of complicated conditions and could be complicated, could be supporting conditions, could be happening before, during, etc. There are many different, hence in the Patana, there are, so, there are 24 conditions. Um, but, but Buddha did not make a distinction between a cause and condition, which is why the word cause and condition, hetupicea, they, they show up together, cause and conditions, cause and conditions, cause and conditions. So I quote from, um, from a book by the scholar Kalu Pahana, and the name of the book is Causality, the central philosophy of Buddhism. The terms Hetu and Pichaya are discussed. All the evidence from the Pali Nikayas and the Chinese Agamas indicate that during the earliest phase of Buddhism, the two terms were used synonymously and that they did not express any distinction. Comparable to the distinction between cause and subsidiary conditional um, it was, oh, uh, any distinction, sorry, th that was the print. I'll read the sentence again. It's, it looks a little funny. Okay. All the evidence from the Pali Nikayas and Chinese Agamas indicate that during the earliest phase of Buddhism, the two terms were used synonymously and that they did not express any distinction comparable to the distinction between cause and subsidiary condition. Doctrinal as well as textual evidence suggests that um, that distinction originated with the Sarvastivadins, which was much later. So, 
and also looking at the suttas, you know, the, the Buddha, I would say, in, in Nikki's um, terminology, I think she, he was too brilliant, too smart, of course, to make a distinction between causes and conditions. Because philosophically speaking, um, it's actually quite complicated. It's really an abstraction. And this is the part we're trying to get avoid getting into because it gets a very heady. But for the next five minutes, I'm going to get very heady so that you'll see why it's not a good idea to go there. <laughs> okay, ready? All right. So, so in Western philosophy, and then there's been so much written about causes, the difference between what, what we call a cause and, and conditionality. So I'm going to bring in some from Western philosophy. So, so, um, so definition, causality, also referred to as causation or cause-effect, is what connects one process um, to another process, uh, you know, cause-effect or condition effect, where the first part, first is partly responsible for the second, and the second is partly dependent on the first. In general, a process has many causes, uh, which are said to be causal factors for it, and all lie in its past. An effect can be in can in turn be a cause of or casual factor for many other effects which all lie in the future. So causality is an abstraction that indicates how the world progresses. So basic a concept that is more apt to an explanation of other concepts progression than as something that is to be explained by something more basic. So it's really an abstraction. So let me let me continue. I'm still within my five minutes of complete abstraction. Okay, so let's consider. Let's consider what's defined as a necessary cause. So if X is a necessary cause for Y, then the presence of Y necessarily implies the prior occurrence of X. The presence of X, however, does not imply that Y will occur. Okay, that's a necessary cause. Okay. I'm going to build on this. And if you're not following, don't worry. Just let it go. Okay. Now, sufficient causes, or you can call it sufficient, sufficient causes, is if X is a sufficient cause for Y, then the presence of X necessarily implies the subsequent occurrence of Y. However, there another cause, Z, may alternatively alternatively cause Y. Thus, the presence of Y does not imply the prior occurrence of X. Okay, that's a sufficient cause. So basically, what we call, um, so um, philosopher J.L. Mackey argues that usually when we're actually saying something is a cause, is actually an I-N-U-S condition. So all causes are really just conditions. So what is an INUS condition? Um, so it means insufficient but non-redundant parts of a condition which is itself unnecessary but sufficient for the occurrence of the effect. <laughs> 
It's an abstraction, right? Okay, I'll read a little more. I'm still within my five minutes. You see where I wasn't going here? Okay. So, for example, an example uh, of this is a short circuit as a, as a cause for a house burning down. So consider the collection of events, the short circuit, the proximity of flammable material, and the absence of firefighters, okay? Together, these are unnecessary but sufficient to the houses burning down, since many other collections of events certainly could have led to the house burning down. For example, shooting the house with a flamethrower in the presence of oxygen and so forth, right? You can come up with other, uh, other causes. Within this collection, the short circuit is an insufficient since the short circuit by itself would not have caused the fire, so it's insufficient, but non-redundant, because the fire would not have happened without it, everything else being equal. Part of a condition which is itself unnecessary, but sufficient for the occurrence of the effect. So the short circuit is an INUS condition for the occurrence of the house burning down, which we call a cause as a shorthand, but it's only a condition which satisfies all these complicated, made-up conditions. If that didn't make sense, don't worry about it. The point is, an effect has a lot of, co- a lot of, con- a lot of causes, a lot of conditions, It's not just one cause versus a condition. And that distinction, really an abstraction of our mind that we put on for simplifying our lives. And yet, you know, philosophers have have discussed this. For example, if um, if you get hit, if somebody punches you, is it because... They, act, they exerted an effort, or is it that your face happened to be in the way of you know, the fist that, that came? Or if there was an accident and a car swerved and hit a pedestrian, was it because at that time the car swerved, that was the cause, or, was it, or is it that if the car would have swerved anyway, but there was no pedestrian at that time walking, the accident would not have happened. So maybe that's the cause. So as you see, it starts to kind of go a little haywire if you, if you get it. it so in, in a way, so, all right, I'm, I'm over my five minutes. So, so that's why cause and condition, not, not, not very helpful, not helpful at all to try to figure out, is this a cause? Is this a condition? There are different types of causes and conditions that we're exploring in a practically helpful way and um, and um, what else to say about that um, just don't go there <laughs> um, there's one sutta I can mention let's see let me pause for a moment So maybe I will mention, maybe I'll end with this sutta. So, so in this sutta, again, the, the Buddha talks about 
seed being sown in the field, etc., and lots of things. So here. Then the Bhikkhuni Sela, having understood, this is Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verse, This puppet is not made by itself, nor is this misery made by another. It has come to be dependent on a cause. With the causes break up, it will cease. As when a seed is sown in a field, it grows dependent on a pair of factors. It requires both the soil's nutrients and a steady supply of moisture. Just so the aggregates and elements and these six bases of sensory contact have come to be dependent on a cause. With the causes break up, they will cease. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing the Bhikkhuni Sela knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. It's usually fun when Mara disappears right there. So here in this sutta, looking at the Pali, it actually shows up the, the, um, the, the word for cause, causality, conditions. It shows up as hetu picheya, hetu picheya. So there is no distinction. There was no distinction that was made. Um, so, okay. All right, you can shake all of that off. <laughs> I'll end it there. Bonte? So I think the next questions are dealing with the aspect of anatta. No, there is also one that is quite elaborated, that's and then right. that's why we kept them. I have that one. Would you like me to? I'll read that. Oh uh, yes, maybe we start with this one. Should that's we a do good that one? because we have about four or five points in, the, in that's it. That's right. We have a lot of points. Okay. So, dear teachers, I'm looking forward to learning more about the concept of anatta because I'm confused and it's a multiple part question. If there is no self, to what does kama attach and follow from life to life? Part two. Where does the notion of blame and one's responsibility, freedom of will, for choosing right over wrong fit in the Buddhist teachings? It seems de-emphasized in the teachings on anatta and re-emphasized in the teachings on sila. I had thought that if there was an I, it would reside in intention because it's where we choose right action over wrong. If not that, it would be in the feeling of existing or knowing. Awareness? Question mark. Can you explain why this is not a correct understanding in the Buddhist teachings? Monty, do you want to start or do you want me to start either? Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, so I will start. <laughs> so first of all, uh, like uh, the intention is like the lady. I think it's a lady. He asking uh, about uh, she will define uh, the self as with the intention. It seems uh, so. If there is a self then intention itself will represent the, 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 the most, uh, the most uh, convenient uh, aspect of it. But uh, in the Buddhist philosophy, it's not that there is no self. It is just that the aggregates of existence are just a process. The aggregates of existence are just the agglomeration of aggregates 
So the all of it will make what could be called a self. So the self actually is just a concept that we are making out of the accumulation of that whole field of actually energy. So for example, if we take uh, like the, the text they give the example, the simile of a chariot. So if you take a car, huh? so we have a car, what, whichever model you, you, you have there, for in your mind, this is a car. It has four wheels and then also it's running like a car. So if we look at the concept, what do you call the car? Is the motor? Is it the car? Here are the doors. Is it the car? Are the wheels? Uh, are the, 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 the windshields? Are whatever component of the car? Is there a car or there is no car? So there is a car, but the car is just a concept. The concept is just a representation of what we denominate as a car. So the same thing, we are a kind of vehicle, and uh, this is a, a label that we are putting on the five aggregates. So if we are using the classification of what we call ourselves, the five aggregates of the matter, rupa, and then the four aggregates of mind, vedana, sanya, uh, vijnana and sankara. So all these five aggregates within the mind, like a consciousness, feeling, perception, and uh, mental formation. So all these things put together is what I call myself. So uh, the analysis sometimes that is made in Buddhism is they say, okay, now the Buddha asks, are you the body? Are you this phenomena of uh, materiality? And the person will say, no, actually, I don't identify myself with the body um, because the body is changing. And also, I have no control on the body. The body gets old and uh, all that hmm, is six when, when I don't want it to be six. So uh, in this sense, I am not the body. So are you uh, the perception or are you the feeling, for example? And then the person comes to the conclusion that no, the feeling is the same. So uh, the feeling are just changing and then feeling also are not under my control. So there is, uh, I cannot say that this is myself. And then the same with the perception and then the formation and the consciousness. So if we look at all these five aggregates, when they are separated, it's no more. We, the label of a self on that will not be possible to attach because it is we don't have any mastery on that and also it is empty of uh, lastingness it doesn't last beauty because it's changing uh, you know to beauty is relative pleasure because the pleasure also is uh, uh, impermanent and also well where is the self there and do we own these things. So, as regard to the idea of uh, intention and then also of karma, then we cannot deny the fact that we are making actions. We cannot deny that life is just actions. And then also, as we have seen with a few texts, is that all actions, verbal, physical, or mental, are motivated, have as their motor 
the intention, the volition. So actually, karma is volition. So in this sense, is volition, is it me? Is, it a, is there a self in volition? So the result of actions, actions are produced, are motivated by volition. So the result of actions are just the results of, uh, of what has been done. But the motor itself, that means the intention, is still just a mental energy. So that intention is also conditioned. That intention also, sometimes we have mastery on it, sometimes we, it's completely out of our mastery. So in this sense, uh, there is no owner, and then also there is no master, and also it's, there is no permanence there. So I will add, um, especially regarding the first part of the question, if there is no, if, if, um, if there is no self. And by the way, the appropriate way of translating anatta is not so much no self, it's not self. Because no self can be kind of confusing as if there is no self. Whereas not self, it means it's not personal, it's not self. So if there is not self, to what does kama attach and follow from life to life? So one simile I like to, to uh, offer uh, is, is that actually, so what is attaching, what kama is attaching to is karmic potentiality, karmic potentiality moving from one life to the next. And karmic potentiality um, which actually is giving rise from a, from a previous life to to um, to this life, you can think of it as uh, billiard balls. So, and also this is a good opportunity to also distinguish between rebirth and reincarnation. So, with reincarnation, there is actually an atta. There is a self, there is a soul. And so imagine a billiard ball, that's a red billiard ball. It's rolling across the table. And at some point, it gets covered with green color and it keeps moving. So it's still the same ball, same atta, but it now looks different, has a different identity, is born differently. That's reincarnation, which is not what we subscribe to, what, what Buddhism subscribes to. Buddhism subscribes to rebirth. Okay, how is that different and how does that work? So now think of the billiard ball rolling across. It's rolling, it has potential energy. Remember your physics, potential energy. So it has some potential kinetic energy and it comes and hits another billiard ball. And now the first one has stopped, has ceased to move, but the second one is in motion. So think of that transfer of energy, that transfer of kinetic energy from one ball to the next. It's a different ball. It's a completely different being. But what has transferred is the kinetic energy. It's it's the uh, karmic potentiality. The karmic potentiality is what has got this 
second ball in motion. And that's what karma attaches to. It's not attaching to a self. It's kind of being transferred in, in that moment. And then another aspect of the question, maybe I'll pass this back to you, Bhante, we'll go back and forth if you wish. Where does the notion of blame and one's responsibility, freedom of will, for choosing right over wrong fit in the Buddhist teachings? It seems de-emphasized in the teaching on anatta and re-emphasized in the teachings on sila. So, of course, if we bring the aspect of free will, then we will have the old man to discuss about it, and then <laughs> we will not have finished. So, uh, the thing is that uh, we are responsible for our actions, but uh, actually there is, no, there is non-self. Huh? Let me see the question again. Mm. Just to start from specific. It's, it's actually over two pages. It's the bottom yes. of one and the top of this one. So the notion of blame and one's responsibility, freedom of will, for choosing right over wrong, fit. Here's the rest. Fit there. Buddhist teachings. So... The thing is that uh, the Buddhist teachings is just speaking about laws. So there are laws of the universe, and the law of karma is one of them. So the law of karma is speaking about force, like as we, we have seen with the example of the billiard balls, that just because of the impact of one ball to the other ball, then the force is still going on. So. Where is there the sense of responsibility? The sense of responsibility is just that we have to acknowledge that causes will bring some effect. We have to acknowledge also that effects, results, are because of causes. So in a way, we are not responsible. It's not our faults. Because we don't have a choice, we are conditioned to act in one way or the other way. But nevertheless, we have to take the responsibility or just to accept that this is a natural process of cause and effect. So if there is something happening by way of result, by understanding the forces of actions, then we see this is the result of our actions, but there is non-self there, and then the thing is that uh, if we see, if we have the possibility to have that clear observation, when we have in meditation, then the ident- identification we will have with the, with the process will be less. So we will, we will see that okay, now this is just an effect of causes. So by seeing just that as a natural uh, process, then there won't be blaming. We will see, we could see that some actions are called, are bringing positive results, and also some actions are bringing negative results. But there will not be blaming anyone 
because it's just the law. So the law is going to bring the results that the causes have, uh, that the, the causes are, are calling for. So the, the question of choosing also between right over wrong is a very tricky one. That means it's a it can be a very uh, relative type of evaluation. Where is wrong? Where is, where is right? So uh, in Buddhism, the type of analysis is very empirical. That means it is based on experience. We have to see for ourselves when we are doing certain actions, what are the results? What are the, the qualities of mind that are brought together with these actions? So when we get more mature, when we understand the effect of certain dispositions, the effect also of certain uh, actions, then then we will have the possibility just to back up and then to choose a way of doing, a way of thinking, a way also of, uh, of doing things that will be going in the right way, in a way that will bring positive uh, effect. So the choice actually is, 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 is just some, we have no choice somehow because that choice is conditioned by the views that we have. But when we have the possibility to meditate, then our field of alternatives for the choice is much wider. So still, we will not have a choice it's by itself because our choice is going to be conditioned by the view we have on the reality. So somehow, we don't have a choice. Like if you are well established in the Dhamma, and then you have the possibility to steal something, or then your integrity will make that you will not have choice. You will not steal something. You will, as much as you will not harm somebody because you are conditioned, because you have seen for yourself that the results are not going to be good. So the more we get that uh, space between uh, actions, or the more we get that uh, type of wider view, the more liberated we become. So, so, so. There is freedom, but uh, there is uh, no freedom also. So first, we have to understand our chain in order to lose them a little bit, to, to extend them a little bit, and then at the end, we, can, we are able to cut our chains. So, um, so I'll take that. So it's actually, as Bonte was saying, it's, it's actually rather paradoxical, but it does make sense. So... So, the teaching of not-self, it, it, it really, in a way, is a teaching about conditionality. Because in a way, there are um, causes and conditions, and this self is a process. 
However, the teaching of anatta and not self does not free us of, of responsibility. And I'll I'll talk about it from different perspectives. One is that, you know, as a as a being, we have a responsibility um, for our karmic potentiality that we're sending forward. It's it's and it's also a responsibility for the interdependence that we have as a being with all other beings. And that refers back to something that I actually want to bring up and refers to some other questions here, which is there is ultimate reality and there is a relative reality. So in ultimate reality, of course, not self. This is a process. And yet, we exist. We have a body, we get hungry, we have an address, we work, we have emotions, we have a history, a past. And both of these realities, both the ultimate reality and the relative reality, they're equally important. They're equally important. And their level of sila and behavior, and when we do metta practice, it's on the relative level. And when we do wisdom practices and seeing things just as they are, we're practicing on the ultimate level. Both are profound and it's a mistake to privilege one over the other. And many practitioners tend to privilege the ultimate at the beginning of their practice. Ooh, it sounds so cool. It's like, oh, not self and all that. Or actually, it's a big mistake. And the teachings are that the two truths, two truths are just as important. Because the truth, two truths are happening at the same time, all the time. It matters how we behave, whether we're kind, etc., etc., cultivating, etc. And at the same time, there, this is a process. It is conditioned. It is conditioned, and we are conditioning, and we are changing the conditions. So in that way, there is, we are creating different conditions by being mindful. There are a set of conditions that already set up our genes, our parents, our culture, our education, every experience we've had in our life has been a set of conditionality, not to mention past lives, we won't even get there, but even a one-life model. There's so many conditionalities that have set forward the way we're going to think, the way we're going to act, but there are probabilities. We're more likely to get upset when somebody says blah, 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 or we're more likely to... So think of them as probabilistically. There's more likely... There's more likelihood. It's really probabilistic, all of these, all of these causes and conditions. It's not A, therefore B. It's a probabilistic, and again, I won't get into that, but, but think of it as having this looseness of probabil- probabilities. Okay. Now, by bringing mindfulness, by bringing sati, we're actually changing the probabilistic equations in our mind and heart. So that when something happens, when X happens, oh, our tendency might start to be a little different. Instead of getting angry right away, oh, we pause for a moment. Okay, 
Maybe I won't get angry. Maybe I won't get upset. And little by little, these tendencies, these karmic potentialities start to change. So there, it may seem like there is no freedom, but there is freedom in changing. It's really um, one, another brilliant thing that Buddha did by introducing um, the teachings, the, the idea of self and free will kind of actually drops out of the equation completely. It doesn't become a question. And again, we can spend a month exploring that. But it drops out of the question because it becomes a question of conditionalities. Seeing conditionalities, knowing that yes, there are conditions that are are giving rise to what's happening now and knowing that there is the ability to to change the equation, the prob the probabilities in those conditional formulas moving forward. And I'll weave that actually into another question which relates to and our practice when we try to heal difficult childhood memories, events, how much can or should we contemplate anatta, or anatta, rather? Similarly, I would say that in the cases like that, contemplating anatta is not helpful because it's, it's like spiritual bypass at that point. Oh, it didn't really happen. Oh, there's no self anyway. It's not helpful at all to know the self completely, embrace the self, love the self before you let go of the self, before you let go of it. So again, the two truths in this case, in the case of of really getting to know and embrace and understand the self in this way and the childhood memories, the healing that needs to happen is on the level of the the relative truth with metta, with appreciation, with love. And the time will come that it might be appropriate and anatta will arise on its own, the the abs- the ultimate reality. So so not helpful to contemplate anatta at in in this in this case. Back to you, Bhante. So maybe just one last question, and uh, it's not clearly written, but nevertheless we can figure out what is it, what it is. So causes and condition, no self. A thought arises, mind consciousness, association, I is triggered. Then, two, etc., etc. And, obs- and observing this, how is this chain slowed down, or to show, or to slow no self process, no self. So what this question may refer, I'm not so sure, but uh, when the instructions are given, okay, now in the, 
in the like with the object so there is the object of seeing the object of hearing the object of touching and all the the six senses objects so there is the object and then uh, consciousness in regard to these six objects and uh, then uh, the base the six bases and then the contact and then and then you know all all that is connected with the contact is arising so how is this chain slowed down so what is uh, what we try to do is to give more quality to the way we are observing this whole process so we slow down we don't necessarily slow down the things that are changing but we give a more accurate observation of them so we are we are able to uh, to understand basically the different conditions and also we are able to understand finally that it is it's just a process so understanding causes and conditions is what will make us understand no self i don't know if the question has been understood or explained properly but the whole idea anyway is just to understand the experience that we are having and then with the quality of presence the quality of observation we are giving to our meditation in all the moments of life then a quality of understanding will come out of it and then things are not necessarily to be slowed down but things will be understood on a deeper level so this understanding of a, a deeper level of reality will enable us to adjust in a way that will be skillful adjust in a way that will be more healthy leading to more happiness and most of all in a way that will lead us to liberation that will lead us to kind of freedom from this all mass of uh, suffering so we are going for happiness for clarity and then for light so understanding uh, refers to that i think the the idea also of no self also of non self has been explained uh, maybe enough now so we will end up here anything you like to add Yes, that's a good idea. We'll sit just for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.